When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I've been receiving some requests from some of you to release the three podcasts that I created years ago on the 1964 unsolved murder of Beverly Jaros. These three episodes were among the first podcasts that I ever created, and it was under the name American Crimecast. You will hear interviews from Beverly's sister, Carol, along with her mother, Eleanor. I am very saddened to share that Eleanor has since passed away. My name is Carl Begacki, and I am a detective with the Garfield Lights Police Department. I've been in the Detective Bureau 15 years, and I've been an officer for 26. Detective Carl Begacki is the lead investigator on the cold murder case of Beverly Jarris. Do you know about how many persons of interest Detective Horrigan uh, narrowed the murder suspect down to? I don't know initially, but through the years, I've always heard that there was just one. And with an older case like this, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of urban legend mixed in as well. I've always heard there was just one that he really focused on hard. Do you know who he thought was the main suspect? No, I don't want to say the name because there's just there's not enough evidence to to make an arrest there. So I don't want to put uh, anybody's name out there that just based on what they were saying throughout the years. But I know he focused uh, pretty much on one person, and that was primarily it. That was his main suspect. But through your own sources, who that person was, right? Correct. Beverly Jarris was a 16-year-old high school junior in the Garfield Heights suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. While home alone, getting ready to go out for an evening at a friend's house, an unknown person interrupted Beverly's routine. Although she fought back tremendously, Beverly lost the struggle. She was strangled with rope and stabbed 42 times. This is the third podcast we have created on Beverly. This one being a special episode released on the 52nd anniversary of her murder. To learn more details on the life and murder of Beverly Jarris, refer to Beverly Part 1 and Part 2. Of the, I guess since there was only one main person of interest for Oregon, the second question that I had was, of the people who he could have considered suspects, 
Do you know if any of them retained lawyers or how cooperative they were? Yeah, there, there were several that retained lawyers. Even when we looked into it a second time, they retained lawyers. But back then, too, a lot of these people that were interviewed or possible suspects were teenagers. And it wasn't unusual for some of the parents to get their uh, kids' attorneys. So you can put whatever weight into that as you want, but even in today, you make an arrest today even of a juvenile, and it's not unusual for the parent to have the kid get an attorney right away. I don't know how much bearing that has. Yeah, and, well, I mean, from an outsider looking in, with how brutal of a murder it was, I could see why their parents would want their children to have lawyers because I feel like if I was questioned about either some one of my friends or someone that lived near me and they were murdered in such that in the way that Beverly was murdered, I could see my parents wanting me to have a lawyer present just because of the sensitive situation. Exactly. And for a 16-year-old kid to be interviewed by several policemen in a room, it could be pretty intimidating, especially, well, like you say, what kind of case this is. So I, I wouldn't blame the parents. I don't blame the parents for doing that. But like I say, that doesn't you know, point the needle in their direction as far as being showing guilt at that right. point. Yeah. At any point in time since 1964, have detectives ever considered Beverly's murder to be associated with a serial killer? No. I've never heard that throughout the years. There's no indication to think about that in the file. There, back then in 64, after the murder, the detectives there pretty much went everywhere that they possibly could uh, to try and follow up on leads that came in throughout the, the next several days and weeks. But never once was that mentioned as a serial killer. There is one mention of Richard Speck. Back then, when he murdered the nurses, but as far as I could tell, they could never pin, pin him down to ever being near Garfield Heights. Okay. And then, still today, do you not consider that as a possible possibility? I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I, I, I guess I wouldn't rule it out totally because you never know. There's been cases throughout the years where we've found people have killed multiple people and they're and they're living in, in quiet suburbs and living a quiet life. So we've had that happen before, and we've even had one or two in Garfield Heights. But, yeah, I wouldn't rule that out. The way the, the way the crime was done and that, it's, I think if that was the case, you would have more in the area, probably within that time frame. But at this point, I wouldn't rule anything out. Makes sense. Do you know how seriously in 1964 detectives took the suggestion by Coroner Gerber that a female could have been the suspect or could have been a suspect? I know that was always a theory, and I've also heard that throughout the years at the police department that it could have been a female. All I can tell you is at this point, too, there's several females uh, in this story the day of the murder. And I can tell you, like Barbara Klonowski and Margie Gorney, these young ladies had nothing to do with this murder. That I can definitely tell you. And it seems like throughout the years, we were able to more rule out more people than add people, it seems like. But those girls had nothing to do with this. And especially Barbara Klonowski, she was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Do you know how many detectives back then considered Beverly's murder as a sexual assault as the main motive? And 
out of those detectives, did that include Detective Horrigan? I can't give you a specific answer on that. The files, a lot of them mentioned that's a possibility as far as what, if, that, if they thought that was the driving force behind it, I can't give you an accurate answer on it. Could it be? Yes. And could it be an interrupted one by Barbara knocking on the door? Absolutely. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely say that that was part of the motive. Okay. And going back to the females from the day, there has been a lot of speculation over the years as to if those three girls were going to Margie's that afternoon. Back in 1964, were detectives able to verify those stories? Yes, and it was Bar- Barbara Kronowski was going to meet Beverly, and then from there they were going to go over to Margie Gorney, who, who only lived, I mean, short distance away. That's been verified. And Barbara Klonowski, after after she left Beverly's house, was also picked up by a classmate driving by, and we verified all of that. That's all 100% accurate. And that, that were, the girls had those plans for the day. That's what they were going to do. They were going to go over to Margie's together. So that's 100% accurate. Just from an outsider looking in, with so many people having the same story, it would be very unrealistic if Someone, if they all made it up after after all these years, that they're all keeping with the same story. So <laughs> that's correct. And yeah. when you take a step back and you look at it, the timelines all fall into place as for what the what these people are telling you. Right. Uh, back in 1964, do you think that the results that were obtained from the two dogs, those two dogs had? or they were used to track a scent, and they tracked the scent to a curb on McCracken Road. Do you find that reliable or not? Um, I'm going to say probably not, and the reason why I say that is because later, as, as time went by, they found the guy that had the dogs. He was unreliable himself. Mm. Uh, he had a couple issues, and I believe it makes you wonder if the guy was just there to get his name in the case or some kind of a popularity or recognition, but dogs are definitely a useful tool. The way they stop at the curb, it could mean that they somebody got into a car. They've always speculated that. But to have a car sitting stopped on McCracken Road, which is a main artery, somebody would have to see that. But yeah, I don't think that was the issue, and I don't put 100% credibility into that story with the dogs. Definitely understandable. Back in 1964, do you think that those detectives formed a good center command post that would that would be able to receive and exchange all the new information and leads that were coming in? Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. There is a filing cabinet that we have that has at least four, four or five drawers full of tips, uh, over 800 statements and correspondence between them and Cleveland Police Department and other various sheriff's departments, FBI, all, all kinds of people. Yes, I, I think they had a very, very good understanding of what they had to do and documented it very well. And they've documented it so well that it's preserved in a way that would allow us to still continue and still be able to get enough information to find some of these people. Mm-hmm. That would almost be intimidating, I think, for me to, <laughs> to look back at a case from 1964 and find all those files still intact. Yes, and they did a great job by doing that. And I know I've met some of them personally. They're mostly all deceased now, but I will say that those guys still carried that case or this case with always. It never left. Solving a murder back in 1964, when you compare that to to today, clearly the methods would not be the same. Do you think that there is anything 
that was done back in 1964 that you wish may have been done differently that could have helped solve the case? Uh, yeah, the only thing that I think could have been done maybe a little differently was secured the scene a little better. But it's not because that was just police tactics back then, and it was not unusual back then to have uh, people in the crime scene, even the press. So that, that was not unusual. Today, I think the scene would have been sealed off a lot more. There's more concern for body fluids, chemicals, DNA, that kind of stuff. So I think that would probably be the big differences. And you certainly wouldn't have the media in the same room either. I remember the first time that I read through what happened during the murder, and I got to the part where the detective brought in the uh, neighbor boy that drove Beverly home. And I thought, you know, that is really weird. But then I had to take a step back and remind myself that was in 1964. Definitely the procedures and things have changed. So, right. you know, from someone from 2016 looking back, you know, I definitely see what you're talking about there. And like I say, it's not because I don't think it was a mistake on their part. It was just the accepted way of doing things back then. Mm -hmm. Right. Up until 2004, when you and Chief Sackett first officially reopened the case, do you know how many times had the case been looked at carefully up until then? And if it had been looked at, did, was there any new information or leads that emerged between the 1960s and 2004? I, I will say this. During the 70s, they still continued to receive tips. 80s, they still received tips. And then when I got in the Bureau in the 90s, they, or in the uh, 2000s, we still received tips. So I know those guys before me were actually taking these tips and following up on them. There's notations in the file that will say, we talked to receive the tip on this, receive the tip on that. I don't think they really produced a lot of new suspects, but we really didn't get to that part until myself and Steve Sackett decided to run all the fingerprints again, and whatever evidence, physical evidence we could have, we tried to do what we could with that. And we were able to come up with a, a name or two that was never in the file. And we tracked down those people, and they were ruled out for various reasons. Some of them, like we had one that had fingerprints, but the kid was, he used the story to get out of military school. And yeah, and we actually tracked down people from the military school in Indiana who verified it. And his prints were not found in the house or at the scene. But they were found on certain items like tips that came in, that kind of thing. Yeah, we were able to identify a few more people. But like I say, they never panned out to any uh, possible suspects or viable suspects, I should say. Okay. And speaking of just trying to stay in the 1964 era, there's been lots of rumors and things you know, that people have thought of since 1964. Back then, was there any evidence that you could think of that Detective Horrigan would have thought that the murder scene was staged? No, I don't think it was staged. There's been theories that her body was staged a certain way and whatever, and I don't buy that. The crime scene itself was very brutal, and I don't think anybody, you know, keep in mind, too, this is a crime that's interrupted. Well, wow. Barbara's knocking on the front door. And like we said before, if, this, if there was going to be a sexual assault occurring, that stopped right there. So I think immediately after that, I wouldn't be surprised if he saw Barbara walk back up the street and then head out the back door. That's what I think. I don't think there was anything staged. And that's my opinion, how you just 
you know, worded things right there. Looking at it from an outsider's point of view, I definitely see that would be the simplest option, the thing that makes sense. So yeah, so people thinking that the crime scene could have been staged, but that takes time, effort, like it just, it didn't make sense. Do you know what may have happened to Beverly's diary back in 1964? No, I don't, and it's not mentioned in the file. I understand that the family said it's missing from her room, and we were never able to find out what happened to it. Okay. Okay. So did, my understanding was that the family thought that you guys had it, but then, so what, you're just confirming that it, it never was mentioned in any of the files, anything like that, but you got, you, no one knows what happened to it, basically. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Going on to 2004, what prompted the reopening of Beverly's case in that year? You know what, actually, what prompted it was a conversation that I had with Chief Sackett at the time, and we both grew up in Garfield Heights, and we were talking one day, I believe it was at my house, and we got on the subject of the Beverly Jarrell's case and what we had heard growing up, because like I say, there's a lot of urban legend mixed into this whole thing, and oh, he heard certain stories, I heard certain stories, and we both, the bulb went off, we both looked at each other and said, what are we doing here? This case is sitting right here, let's see if we can find some of these people, they gotta still be alive, and quite a few are still alive. And we started it that way. We started contacting the family, and Mrs. Jaros and Mr. Jaros and, and Carol were very open to the idea, and they welcomed us down to the house one day, and we, we sat and talked and told them what we were going to do, and we started from there. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. Okay. When you did reopen it in 2004, was there any people of interest from 1964 that continue to remain people of interest that year? Yes. And uh, they still remain now. Sorry, Shane. Yeah, and they still remain now. Beverly had a a unique circle of friends on one side and then a unique circle of friends on the other. And so she kind of floated. She had two different groups that she would go in between. And and as she was growing up, like 14 to 16. So, yeah, some of those people are definitely, definitely still on the list. There's no doubt. Were there any new people that you guys were able to add on after that 2004 opening? 
Yes. Yes, we were able to add one or two guys for sure. Okay. Are you able to elaborate on what led to to the new people? Like what was different from 1964 to 2004 that led to them being added? Like I said, the fingerprints on one came through. We looked at that guy for a while, which didn't pan out on a guy at a valid alibi. There was one gentleman that was really, he was developed a little later on actually, not that long ago. And uh, he, when we went through some of the statements, you could you could see there was discrepancies in some of these people's statements. And when we contacted them, some of them knew in 1964 to be 16 years old and in, in Garfield Heights. This is like there when people say, "Hey, where where were you when President Kennedy was shot?" Everybody can tell you that's like this on a different scale. And when we talked to certain people, they were more than helpful, but they were like. Oh, God, I remember that. My father made me lock the doors after that. Nobody went anywhere, you know, the whole thing. Well, some people gave statements that I think you normally wouldn't give. And right away you start thinking and I, about them and their their stories. And we actually were able to discover some discrepancies in some of the statements. Okay. And I assume because it is an open case still, you're not able to talk about who those, who those people are? That's correct. Okay. Were there any people who had been interviewed in 1964 and that you guys reached out to to re-interview? Were there anyone that wasn't being cooperative out of those people? Yes, one or two. Some of them came, some of them did come in, and some of them, while in the interview, requested an attorney. Some of them w would refuse to take a polygraph. Out of about six people, I think two required or uh, requested an attorney and would not take the polygraph. Uh, the other four would talk, but some of them wouldn't write statements. And some of them, when you look at it as 52 years ago, some of them are, their memory isn't as good as it was. So. You had a real on that as well. Yeah. And if, if also if you think about it, these are people who were, whether or not they were involved or not, have been you know, consistently brought up in this case through all of these urban legends. So I can see where it would be difficult on your guys' part in order to try to get them to come in and be cooperative. But then again, be sensitive to the fact that there are all these urban legends about these people that the community has placed blame on a lot of well, these people, and only one person probably did it. You know what I mean? You're, you know what? You're correct when you say that because I'll, I'll tell you, a lot of people think they know what happened, and they think they – when we've talked to people, some of them were shocked to, to find out that things they thought for the last 50 years happened, and they never did. And what happens is some people – get branded by this case and have to live in this shadow. Like Barbara Klonowski, she didn't, she had to live with this. She has to live with this and she did nothing wrong. She just right. went over there and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she should not have to pay for this for her whole life. It's not fair to her. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And when the first time that I was going through this case, and I would see some of these urban legends, see what some people were saying about it. In your example, using Barbara, I just thought, I just thought, how horrible could it have been to have been there at the time that one of your best friends is going through that murder and then get all those people 
holding those rumors above you for your entire life. In her case, too, she could have been murdered. So when you look at it that way, I have never heard anybody say, oh, Barbara, thank God you weren't murdered. All I hear is Barbara was on the porch and there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's Like I said, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And, And also, as you said, thank God she wasn't murdered because her name was being thrown out all over the community at that time. Everyone knew that was her that was outside of the porch. In her eyes, I could see again where she would be also scared of whoever did this, knowing that she was the one. That- I was just going to say, Be- Beverly is the victim, but this case also leaves so many other victims behind it. The family, Barbara Kronowski, all these people like Barbara, they have to live, like I say, with that shadow over her. And the poor family is stuck here. With They're the biggest victim here besides right. uh, Beverly. So there's a lot of people that this whole thing encompassed that till, still today live under that uh, veil of suspicion, so to speak. Right. <clears throat> Going back to the case being reopened in 2004, did Garfield Heights did you guys were you guys were you guys reaching out to any other law enforcement agencies back then? Yes, we had worked with the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office back then because they had uh, a lot of the whatever left of the evidence was stored there. So we reached out to them and they were very receptive to us, very helpful, and they provided us with whatever information and evidence that they still had. We also worked with the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, BCI Lab in Richfield, and more than helpful, and they were able to do some work for us as well. And we also worked with the FBI profiling unit in Quantico, Virginia. And we drove out to Quantico one weekend, and we sat down with some of the top guys in their field and showed them our case. Okay. Okay, and and this is something that you'll have to clarify for me. From with my conversation with Carol, she had mentioned that the case was reopened in 2004, and it was re, re, reopened again in 2015. Can you explain, you know, what happened in between there? I, we in in 2004, the case has always been an open case. There's, it's never been totally closed. There's always somebody that will, a tip comes in and there's always somebody following up on something. But we ran the gamut as much as we could with with what we had to work with. And we just don't want to give up on it. And in 2015, we presented the case to the VDOC Society in uh, Philadelphia. And it's a group of law enforcement officers that are the cream of the crop, from profilers to FBI agents to detectives from all over. And we gave a presentation to to them, and they were able to assist us and bring to light a few things that, that we didn't know of before. With that being said, we were able to develop even another suspect from that. And at this point here, we're currently seeing what our options are with him. Just speaking in a general term, because I know that Beverly's case is still an open one, could Mm -hmm. you give me just a general idea of the advancement in DNA between 1964, 2004, and now? 1964, they weren't aware of anything like that. And uh, all they did primarily were, were fingerprints and blood typing. But with the advent of DNA, and the progression with technology and what they can do in the lab now is just outstanding. 
And I think at some point here, DNA will probably unlock quite a few mysteries uh, in this case for us. Okay, so I, think, so I was just going to say the advancements are in that are light years. I, it's amazing what we can do now when we go to just a, a, a break-in of a house or a, and we can get the DNA from that and send it to the lab. And, and a week later, you got your guy. So right. It's just amazing how much they're breaking this uh, down. It's becoming so fine that they they can determine who sat on that couch and where and who laid in that bed and everything else. And it just seems like it's taking leaps and bounds yearly. So it's not going to take much DNA to unlock. Like I said, it's probably going to unlock a few mysteries in this case. Yeah, I definitely look forward to that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> of, of all of the original people from 1964, from the additional ones you added on in 2004, Today, in 2016, do all of those people still remain a people of interest, or have there been some that you have eliminated? Yes, there have been some that we've eliminated, and there, and there has been one or two that we've added, but yeah, there's always been a main core of people passed away, but there are, there's always been a, I guess you want to say, a main group of people that we have that are people of interest in this case. Yeah. And again, I, I keep saying this as an outsider looking in, that's because I'm from Muncie, Indiana, <laughs> born in 1989. So, you know, I had not heard of Beverly's murder prior to, you know, someone telling me about it probably mm -hmm. now about nine months ago. But the first time I remember looking over the case and, you know, reading about it and things, I would read something about one person that could be a possible person of interest, and I'd be like, wow, it sounds like he may have done this. And I'd read another person, I'd read something about another person, and I'd be like, wow, maybe he done it. Like, so, and, right. and I kept finding myself with each of these people who could be possible persons of interest. I kept finding myself being like, all these people could have done this. Like, they all just... You're exactly right when you say that. When I told it, like, in this filing cabinet, there's... A Say eight, there's at least 800, a little over 800 police files on it, in addition to the tips and everything else. But they're broken down into 25, 25 statements in an envelope. So you can read the first 25, which starts on day one, and by the time you get done reading page 25, you've come away with a good possibility that like you said, oh, this guy looks good. But when you read 25 to 50, you come away with two other guys. And when you read 50 to 75, by the time you're up to 150, You've got a good group of people. That's, you're exactly right when you say that. And just for my own knowledge, do you think that was unique in Beverly's life, that she was surrounded by people who may have something to do with it, but some people have shady past and shady things that went on, or do you think that is something that's the norm? I think Beverly was a typical 16-year-old girl growing up in the suburbs. And I think what happened was when you're, we've all been 14 years old and you're not the same as when you're 16 or 17. And I think what is her life, as she's starting to grow up and mature, you see her making some decisions at a younger age that probably weren't the smartest as any kid would do. And then you see her by the time she's 16, she's starting to become a young woman and mature and she's starting to make other decisions, which totally are opposite than what she did back between 14 and 15. So I think she's just 
your typical 16-year-old girl in the suburbs. There you go. Also staying in 2016, do you feel that someone is out there besides the person who murdered Beverly? Do you feel like someone may know something and they have yet to come forward with that information? I'm going to tell you, yes, I, I do feel that. And I, I can't believe all these years that somebody hasn't told somebody else. But I still say there's got to be somebody out there. The killer did not keep this uh, to themselves. So somewhere along the line, somebody has to know something. I'm convinced that somebody knows something. And either they passed away already or they just won't come forward. We've had people that won't come forward because they had a criminal record, and it was nothing for violence or anything like that, but they just didn't want to deal with the police. So they had family members or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever come up to the station to give a tip because they still wanted to be helpful, but they just didn't want to deal with the police. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that somebody out there knows and they just don't want to get involved. Yeah. I was given a quote that you had mentioned in, in a book by James Renner. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. the book is called The Serial's Apprentice. Mm -hmm. And you were quoted as saying that, and I quote, it was somebody close, if you start taking 10 steps outside the box, you get lost. It's usually right. a simple answer. Could you elaborate on, you know, what you were talking about and what you meant by that? It, sometimes when you do an investigation, you can fall into that trap of a, a shotgun type approach. What I mean by that is you're going all over the place. An FBI told me one time, he calls it chasing shiny objects. And what that means is you're not focusing in on the inner circle. And for someone, for her to let in and that kind of thing, different things that happened that day, I think you really got to focus in on the, on the inner group of people that she was associated with. Back then, after a week or so, if some kid bought rope out in Medina, they went out there and talked to him. If some kid did this out in Painesville, they went out there and talked to him. If some kid had a pocket knife in North Royalton, they went out there and talked to him. So what I'm saying is it's like at some point you can get to that uh, where you're chasing things that they're just spinning your tires, so to speak. You're not getting any traction in the case. And that's what I mean by that. You need to take a step back, look at the full picture here, what you're dealing with, and then work from that angle. The last episode that we did on Beverly's case, we spoke about Harry Joseph Madoff. Did you have any thoughts about Madoff? Was he in the radar? Was he not? Yes. Yes. He, he's definitely on the list of people that uh, we consider people of interest. Harry, Harry Madoff is a very interesting individual. And back then, he was arrested a few weeks after Beverly's murder in Elyria for stabbing a woman in her home. Yeah, he's definitely on the list. At this time, we, we would love to talk to him again, but we understand he's out of the country. During the first podcast episode we put out about Beverly, something that I did not expect coming from a case from 1964 was how much social media is still out there alive with this case in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk to me about what the impact of social media has to the family as well as Beverly's murder case. I can tell you this. Social media is a great tool for us. 
And not only can you obtain information from it, but you can also put information out there. For us to have that now is a great tool. I will also say, though, I think sometimes in this case, social media can be put in a negative light. And I'll tell you, I've had conversations with people, and I've even read some of the comments on some of these websites dedicated to Beverly's murder, and some of them serve no purpose. They they do nothing more than cause pain and anguish within the family and, like I said, cast uh, shadows over people that have no business having that done to them. And I think some of it is not so much totally malicious, but I think some of it is done because people think they know the facts when they really don't know the full facts, so their heart is in the right place, but maybe they don't think before they hit that button and what that, the ramifications of what they're saying. Because a lot of these people are still alive, they're still working, they still have families, and they're still in the area. Put them in that light without knowing any better is just wrong. And I wish some of that on social media would stop. And people need to confirm their facts before they go out on one of these posts that really don't do anything but cause anguish for the family. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with MyLifeInABook.com. Each week, MyLifeInABook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, Her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with MyLifeInABook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out MyLifeInABook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, 52 years after Beverly's murder, her sister remains at the forefront, ensuring that Beverly's life is not being forgotten. This is Carol Bartos, Beverly's sister. There was some suspicion put on to what Beverly did in her free time. One of the theories is that because of your mom's work schedule, 
it was believed that Beverly may have had a lot of unsupervised free time. Do you know if this was true or not? I think I can put that speculation to rest. My mom, she worked part-time, and it was about the equivalent of, oh, three days a week. And I have to say that Beverly's freedom was really curtailed, not increased by the fact that she was solely responsible but by the fact that she was fully responsible for watching me, her little sister, while my mom worked. And as far as working mothers go, Garfield Heights was not a June Cleaver suburb. It was very middle class, and many women worked outside the home. Margie and Roger's moms worked at a bank, and Barb's mom was a music teacher. So my mom was not unusual at that time at all. Do you know where Beverly, you know, would go to entertain some of her friends that she had? My dad finished the basement into a recreation room, and we had a pool table and a fold-up ping-pong table and a record player down there. And that's where primarily she'd go. Other than that, if we'd watch TV, it would be in the living room. So on the first episode for the podcast, when we first started talking about Beverly, when we had mentioned Danny Schulte, we just briefly touched on him. But it, it seems that some of our listeners and some people through social media also believe that maybe you are being easy on him. Maybe you are trying to give him a pass. Do you, what, was your intentions to give him a pass on being a current suspect? No, I have not given Danny a pass at all. After I contacted Danny to thank him for sponsoring Find a Grave page in Beverly's name, I gave Detective Dan's email address, and Carl had a few questions he wanted to ask him, but Dan never replied to Carl. So I pleaded with Dan a couple times in, via email, asking him to communicate with Carl, but he did not respond. This and the fact that Danny left the country shortly after the case was reopened in 2004 keeps him on my list. Diane McClellan is an expert with her knowledge of Beverly's murder case. This is her. Uh, every so often I will do a, a generic Google search of Joseph Madoff. About six months ago, I found a website that is similar to Amazon Books. It's called Book Depository. A British crime writer, Barry Forshaw, wrote a biography about Stig Larson, who is the famous author of the book The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And then he did two more books to make it a trilogy. The biography on Stig Larson is called The Man Who Left Too Soon. The book was released in 2010. At some point after its release, Dr. Uh, Joseph Madoff, using the name Dr. Joseph Madoff, wrote a flattering review praising Stig Larson as both a writer and a person. It had been some years since I watched the original Swedish movie with English subtitles, and decided to view it again. As I watched the movie, I couldn't help but draw some distinct parallels between some events and dates in the movie and Joseph Madoff. I wondered if Dr. Madoff or Joseph Madoff noticed them too. First off, the original title of Stig Larson's book was The Man Who Left Who Hated Women. This certainly would describe Joseph Madoff's perception of women, especially in the 1960s. The movie is broke down into current time and the mid-1960s, especially around 1965. 
1965 is the year Joseph Madel stabbed Gerda Leedy and was then detained by Garfield Heights Police and questioned for 72 hours about the murder of Beverly. Without getting into too much detail of the book and movie, and the other coincidences I noticed were, the book and movie began begin with an elaborate scam, a business scam, a, man, a businessman puts together and bilks money from the government. Joseph Madoff enjoyed and was quite good at developing scams and bilking people. Martin, who is Harriet's brother, rapes her when she is 16, when he is 16. This is near the age when Joseph Madoff raped his stepmother. Harriet kept a journal and a diary, and in it contained murdered girls' names and their cases unsolved. But for some reason, one girl in Harriet's journal is referred to only by initials B.J. There will be mention of an unsolved girl's murder in 1964, as well as others' girls in, 19, in the 1960s. Martin is sent away to school after raping his sister, Joseph Madoff was sent away to school after raping his stepmother. On September the 24th, at a Children's Day festival, Harriet will notice that her rapist brother, Martin, has returned home. On September 24th, 1964, Joseph Madoff returned home to Garfield Heights after being released from a Michigan Reform School. Stig Larson used September 24th as a fictitious Children's Day Festival for some reason. What is somewhat ironic is the Children's Day Festival is very similar to December the 28th and the Catholic Church's Feast of Innocence. It has been 52 years since Harry Joseph Madoff left Garfield Heights without answering the question of where he was on Monday at 1.30 p.m. on December the 28th, 1964. This critique by Madoff on the book The Man Who Left Too Soon can be viewed in the case log on our website. When it comes to Dr. Joseph Madoff, mm-hmm. I know that you've looked into Madoff extensively, just as you have looked into this entire case of Beverly's murder. Do you think that he actually has a PhD? No. My personal opinion is no, he does not. Now, based on what I've learned through the years and people I've talked to, he did take some college courses while in prison. And uh, even prior to that, what I'd read in the newspaper is that he'd even taken back in 1964 and uh, prior when he was in the juvenile detention centers, he had taken some college courses there too. But whether or not it's been enough to add up to a doctor's degree, I'm reluctant to say that it did. Something that is common with professional scam artists is that they will utilize a fictitious degree or credentials to further the illusion that they are making. Wouldn't you feel more comfortable doing a business transaction with someone who has a Ph.D.? When we put out the episode, the second part of Beverly's episode, when we spoke specifically about Madoff, Mm -hmm. some of the questions that I received, one of them was, how much money did he scam people? And how many scams did he do? And so my very first answer to that question is, we don't know how many scams he's done. Because something that's unique when it comes to scamming people Mm -hmm. is that not all of them come forward once they are scammed. 
Exactly, you know, not all the scams are successful, too. Do you right. see there yeah. again, too? Okay. Is Madoff your primary suspect? Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I, I will have to say he's my primary suspect, yes. Okay. And I'm going to say that for two distinct reasons, okay? Number one, for all the people that Beverly knew in her life during her short 16 years, okay, if there was ever um, a problem with anybody, whether it be a boy, boyfriend problem, or just some other guy from a distance or what have you, nothing ever happened, okay? Joseph Madoff came to town again for the second time in Garfield on September the 24th, and 90 days later, three months later, that's, this is what happened, okay? Mm-hmm. And the second thing is just the ferocity and how ferocious the attack was. I just can't imagine anybody who maybe once loved Beverly or thought a lot about her going to this overkill extent. Okay, that's always bothered me. It's just yeah. it's just over the top. It's it surpasses for me it surpasses a crime of passion. Okay? It just for 1964 it's just beyond it. It's just beyond it. And um just um with that to, out of everybody who's there living in Garfield, nice, quiet, suburban Garfield, we have one person who lives within one and a half miles who is anything but quiet and calm, okay? Mm-hmm. Gary Joseph Madoff. When we did Madoff's up, it was based on a conversation I initially had with a medium, mm-hmm. and you know, that was the whole thing that led into doing that episode. Mm-hmm. And putting Madoff in my view, you had already been looking at him, but I had I knew nothing about him at that point. Giving me all the information, and then you guys were like, "No, she is talking about someone." And I, something I do want to point out too: there's a couple sites on the internet that were follow, uh, that I had come across after we'd done the second podcast, and they were saying, "Oh yeah, all of a sudden this medium pops up." I would like to reassure these few people out there on some of these websites that are like the armchair um, detectives, okay, who had listened to the second podcast, but in no way were you aware of, only Carol and I were aware of Harry Joseph Madoff at that. When right. you interviewed Carol for the first time, we never once was he mentioned, okay? No, nope, not at all. He only surfaced after the medium sent you her email and just took Carol right. um, totally off guard. Since the publication of Beverly's Part 2 episode, there has been one more confirmation received from what the medium said. She made a comment saying we should talk about this man and her visions. Millions will hear it. Shortly after that episode, I was asked to join in on a TV series based on true crime unsolved cases. When the show premieres, millions of people will be exposed to this podcast and the episodes in which we have covered. One of the last things that I wanted to reach on, just because a lot of people, when they listen to that episode on Beverly's murder and Harry Joseph Madoff, they asked me if he ever reached out to me. And uh-huh. I think that because this is still an open case, I would not tell people if he did reach out to me or not. Mm-hmm. However, or if he were, if he ever at one point tried to look me up or find me, that's from that's things that I don't think we um, could talk about just because it is a sensitive subject. It's an open right. case. Right, yeah, yeah, that's but, one, yeah. But 
I do want to say that at no point in time has Harry Joseph Madoff reached out to me to tell me that he did not do this. Because, and the, the reason I bring that up is because if someone were to make a podcast or anything online that said that I committed a murder or that I could have committed a murder and talked about all these crimes that I've done, mm-hmm. if, if I was an innocent person, you best believe I would contact you, whatever I can to set the record straight. And we know just from experience that... People will Google his name. Nowadays, in 2016, when we are when I'm recording this conversation with you, anytime a company looks, you know, investing money or they're looking to hire someone, they do a thorough background check. And part of that is to look and see what is in the online space. And now, if someone looks up Harry Joseph Madoff or any variations of his name, you will come across the podcast episode, and if you listen or if you read about it, you will learn about his history and his scammy history and his po- the possibility that he... And right. I think that if he was an innocent person, I think that he would reach out to me and be like, hey, this is a misunderstanding. I did not do this. Here's, you know, mm-hmm. and at no point in time... Have I gotten that? If anybody has any information or uh, wants to leave a tip or even remain anonymous, you can do just call 216-475-5686. That's the Garfield Heights Detective Bureau. And you can talk to me personally. And if not, if I'm not there, just leave a message on my voicemail. I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.